So just a quick thing before we actually jump into the story, just two really quick pieces of information. One, um, I, uh, every two or three years for about three days, I get a little cold. Uh, it's that time uh, of those three-year journeys. So I have a little cold right now. So my voice sounds a bit weird or I squeak funny, uh, just giggle and uh, move on, okay? I'm pretending it's not here, so you guys welcome to do the same. Second of all, um, we are going to be dealing with uh, some realities within marriage today as Paul deals with some things with the church in Corinth. So I am going to be using some PG words, okay? I'm just saying, not going to be going into PG stuff uh, and things you're going to have to explain later, but there may be some words we're going to have to use that if you're in the car and, and your kid goes, what was that word? You may have to do some explaining, okay? We're just going to be using the words uh, but they are PG words. I'd be comfortable with my eight-year-old in here right now. Just you, you know, just want to give you a heads up, parents. If your kids are in here and they're under that PG, there's some words we're going to be dealing with. Okay, I just they're going to come up because that's what Paul is dealing with right now. So, so where are we in the story that is unfolding in this extraordinary book we know as the Bible? Right, we've been traveling from Genesis all the way through the story of God. It's been like nine or ten years now. Uh, we have gone through the Old Testament and the beautiful revelation of the rescue plan of God. We've gone through the Gospels where we discovered that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did and came to rescue us. We're now in the book of Acts and we are traveling with the early New Testament church as the reality of the Gospels rescue is unfolding into this beautiful invitation to live missionally for the kingdom, that we actually participate in the story carrying the gospel to the world. Though God could do it without us, he chooses to allow us to be part of it so that we can fulfill our created purpose to make him known, to know him and to make him known. So uh, we are in the book of Acts, uh, we have been traveling with Paul as he's gone on his three missionary journeys. We're in the third one. That's why we know there's three. Uh, the, the great church planting adventures. Uh, the second adventure he went on, he went into Macedonia. He traveled down Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. In Corinth, uh, he planted a church there and hung out for 18 months with the Corinthians. The city of Corinth was a, a crazy city. Anything goes in Corinth. It's a kind of a Vegas kind of city. It's where you went so, so that you could not have to explain what you're doing. And so feelings were king and anything goes in Corinth. Kind of a crazy place to plant a church. So Paul spends a great deal of time discipling the people in Corinth. He travels on from Corinth in his third missionary journey. He's now back in Ephesus. We are in Ephesus with him, but he writes a letter now to the church in Corinth, and that's why we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. So now you kind of get the quick scope of why we're here. We're doing the book of 1 Corinthians because it's the letter Paul is writing from Ephesus to Corinth uh, to be able to explain some things about the gospel. Why is he writing this letter? Because somebody from Corinth came to Paul in Ephesus and said, the church in Corinth is going nuts. They don't know what they're doing. They've forgotten everything you've taught them. They're acting just like the rest of Corinth and you need to come fix it. 
You need to do something about this. They are not the church. And so Paul is writing this first letter to the church in Corinth to kind of go and correct some of the misguided views that they have found themselves functioning in uh, that, that Paul wants them to kind of go. If you're going to be the church, if, if you're going to represent the gospel in a manner that's actually worthy of the gospel, then this is not the way to behave. It's not about behavior. It is about the privilege of carrying the gospel but if we're going to hold the banner of Jesus up and then act just like the rest of the planet, that does no good for anyone. Okay, so that's what Paul's kind of doing. We know that in Corinth there were major factions in the church. <clears throat> they were fighting and bickering among one another. They were in little cliques, and this clique followed this guy, and that clique followed that guy, and Paul had to write about factions. <clears throat> the factions had become so bad, the disunity so bad, that they were actually cheating each other suing each other, having lawsuits. So Paul deals with lawsuits. And they were acting any way they wanted. So sexual immorality, which was significant in the city of Corinth, was also significant in the church of Corinth. And so Paul wrote about sexual immorality. So the entire letter thus far that we've traveled through has been Paul responding to this person who came to say, you got to tell them what's, got, what's up. They're, they're getting it all wrong. Now, Paul is going to suddenly switch in this journey in the letter to something else he received, and he's going to answer a question for them that seems to be changing tracks completely. It's like, you're going, going, going. Like, now, let's pause on me correcting you about all this stuff, and let's just jump into something else. Let's take a look at what I mean. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided on your way in the door, we are on page 620, 620, 620. If you uh, would like to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. If you have a smart device or your own Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul has just finished unpacking sexual immorality within the church, correcting a way that they thought about it. And now he says in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, do you see the change there? Do you see what Paul just did? <clears throat> He's been talking to them about the information he got from somebody talking about their dysfunction, and now he's pausing on that and saying, now I want to answer one of the questions out of what? Out of the letter you wrote me. So we know something now, right? Paul has two different distinct um, uh, pieces of information from the church. Someone telling him what was going on in the church and a letter from the church itself, kind of saying, Paul, we have some questions about some things. Now, what you're going to notice as we dig into this passage is that the, Paul is going to deal specifically with some of the questions that the church in Corinth had regarding marriage. So we're going to be talking about marriage for a little bit. Now, for those folks out here, that are not currently married. You fall into the single category. You're not in the covenant marriage. I know you just went, up. Oh, I'm checking out for this sermon. Do not check out. This is no time to check out because though we are dealing with the context of marriage, we are really dealing with the gospel as it informs our lives as a whole, including marriage. And so this is extremely important for you to pay attention to as well. One, because some of you will someday be married, and so now's the time to listen in. 
And two, because some of you may never be married, but that is an extraordinary, wonderful way to display the gospel as well. But marriage and the covenant of marriage in your biblical community should matter to you just as singleness should matter to those who are married because both are beautiful displays of the gospel. And we just need to figure out how they play. And we need to play together because that's biblical community. So pay attention. This is going to be gospel stuff, and you need to listen into this. Now, the other thing you're going to notice is whenever, and you know this, this is human stuff, right? When somebody's going to go tell somebody else about my dysfunction, they're going to be super honest, maybe even overly honest, right? Oh my gosh, Renaud's having a really bad day. You've got to be on him. He's doing this. He's doing that. Because they have nothing to lose. They're just trying to get some wise counsel. When I'm talking about my own dysfunction to someone, I'm sugarcoating the whole thing, right? I mean, isn't that what we do? And if I'm not even talking about my dysfunction, I'm just writing a nice letter to my spiritual mentor asking some questions. Then I'm like the kid in the class who raises their hand to ask a question. They don't actually have the question. They just want to prove how smart they are that they even have a question that's smart, right? You know you've been there. Come on. Like, I'm, I'm going to ask this question, and the prof is going to be super impressed that I even know a question like this. And so this letter that was written by the church in Corinth, you're going to get this tone from Paul as though they wrote to him saying, hey, Paul, we're guessing this is super spiritual, and we're guessing this is super spiritual, isn't it? As though Paul would write back and go, you guys are awesome. And Paul's about to go, you guys are missing the entire boat. So take a look. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. Okay, so now we know the question that was asked, right? They had written Paul saying, Paul, we're assuming that if sexual immorality is bad, then therefore engaging in sexual intimacy in any context is bad, and we're going to abstain from the whole thing no matter the context. Ooh, you're spiritual. And that was born out of the same place that all the people acting out in sexual immorality was born out of. Remember we talked last week about Gnosticism, this philosophy that said the body and the spirit was separated out and what you did with your body didn't matter to what happened to your spirit. So since this was spiritual, you could do whatever you wanted with your body. Sexual immorality could run rampant and it would have no impact on your spiritual reality. And that's why these guys were acting out in all sorts of crazy ways in their church context and cultural context. Well, that philosophy of Gnosticism was born out of a philosophy called dualism that came from Plato. So you remember Plato. You probably heard that name before. Plato believed that the body and the spirit were also separate, except the difference was he believed that the spirit was good and helpful, and everything that was spiritual was good and helpful, and the body was evil and bad, and everything physical was evil and bad. So the spiritual journey was one of abstaining from anything physical so that you could be super spiritual, right? And so the people within the church in Corinth bought into this idea. Some of them went and did whatever they wanted because the two are separate. And some of them went, we're going to be super spiritual. And they wrote to Paul saying, we're guessing, since sexual immorality is wrong, that doing anything in marriage is also wrong. So we have made the decision to abstain from all of that in marriage. How cool are we? How cool are we? Well, let's find out how cool they are, okay? Paul writes, 
but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her congenial rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So right off the bat, in simplicity, he answers the question. Wrong idea. Wrong idea. If you think that's going to make you super spiritual, it's not. It's not at all. When you step into the uh, marital relationship and you're a husband and wife, then the entire marital relationship opens up this beautiful space where you can give yourself fully to your spouse. God has great intent in that, including the physical. So he goes, no, listen, every husband and every wife, this ought to be a regular thing in your marriage. Abstaining from this is not a good idea. Now listen. Here's the interesting thing. We all do this in some category. We try to figure out what is going to be most spiritual, and then we try to attain that to demonstrate to everyone we're most spiritual. In our context, for example, we take the gospel and we say this. If it's a prosperity gospel, then what makes you super spiritual? if you're wealthy and and healthy and happy, right? Because that's what God wants for you, so if you have that, then you must be right with God. If you have a poverty gospel, then the more you suffer, the more spiritual you are. So you go suffer your tail off, and you go, look at me, I'm a martyr dying for the gospel. I'm more spiritual than you. You're not suffering much, you're driving a very nice car, right? And so, so we have these worlds, depending on the context, where we're constantly trying to grab for what's gonna be most spiritual and go and attain that. And these guys have said what's most spiritual in this arena is to abstain from sexual intimacy in all categories. And Paul's going, that is not gospel. That is the legalism that's beginning to bleed out of you again. Remember, these guys struggled a great deal, like we do, between two worlds. Lawlessness, licentiousness, this idea that it's all about you. It's all about what you need and what you want and what you feel. And do whatever it is, that's freedom. And that is from the pit of hell. That is not freedom. But then on the other side, it's this. Oh, no, 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 no. If you do X, Y, and Z, then you're super spiritual. Then God will love you. Then God will bless you. So you got to stick to it. That's legalism. And that's from the pit of hell too. And that doesn't bring freedom either. And so the reality is we live under these two realities that freedom is found either when we're under the weight of a restrictive law or when we can do whatever we want. And the gospel says it is neither. Your freedom is far, far bigger than that. It is about what you now know about your soul rescue and about your future and how you now live in that freedom, displaying it to others. So we need to take every circumstance, every relational dynamic, every resource and go, God, it's not about law. It's not about lawless. It's about gospel. And what does that look like? And that's exactly what Paul is now going to begin to unpack for us as it relates to the covenant of marriage and the relationship within marriage. So he begins by saying, first of all, if you think abstaining from physical intimacy in marriage is a spiritual idea, it's unspiritual. It's unspiritual. Don't do that. Okay, so check. We got that. That's not a good idea. Saying to your spouse, I just feel like I need to take a year, be with Jesus unspiritual. Don't make you more spiritual. It's not a good idea. Okay? Here we go. Take a look. He's going to go further. Okay? So he said, husbands and wives, give yourselves to one another. 
For the wife, look at verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Huh, oh wait, before you elbow, ding, ding. <laughs> Told you, we've been having this discussion for a long time. Wait, not done, not done. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Elbow back right now, bam. There you go. See what Paul's doing is he's not creating a space here where we can step into demand. He's creating a space here to say, do you remember who you are? You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. Your body belongs to Jesus. Your soul belongs to Jesus. Your story belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to Jesus. And Jesus created a covenant to put you into. And when he put you into that, he didn't put you in the covenant for you because you already have him. He put you in the covenant for him and for your spouse so that he could display some things to your spouse. Oh, I thought it was for me. No one. Your marriage was never for you. I know, you found the one. I'm so happy for you, but that wasn't the point okay? Because they turn out not to be the one just a few years later, right? That's normal, by the way. Happens to all of us. Welcome. Um, so take a look at this. Look at this. He says, husbands, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to her. Wives, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Do not deprive one another. And he's talking specifically in sexual intimacy right now. Except perhaps, now watch this, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may de devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I love what Paul does here. It's like he has this moment as he's telling you, don't do that. And he goes, no, hold on, there, there is an exception to this. If you do want to take some time off specifically to being available in that intimate way to your spouse, you can do that, but here are the rules. One, you have to agree. Oh, see, this is not one of those, I, I feel like I need to be with Jesus for a while. Well, if your spouse doesn't agree, well then, point one is over. This is an agreement you two make together. Then, the agreement is made for how long? A limited time. Paul's like, a limited time. Short! And Paul wasn't married, so this isn't about some deal Paul's going through. He just gets it, okay? He's like, look, I, I get it. And then he goes like this. And it needs to be short, and when you do it, it should only be for prayer, and it should be for prayer together. He goes, that yourselves, not for one of you to go pray while the other person sits somewhere quietly in a room and waits. This is for the two of you to devote yourselves to prayer for a limited time in agreement. And then he bothers to say, just in case you start getting so caught up in prayer that you're like, this is a wonderful way to live, get back together shortly after. It's like, don't. Don't neglect this beautiful gift God intended for us to experience to display oneness about the gospel and about God to others. This is important. Now look what he says here. He says this. <clears throat> now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. It's an interesting little thing he throws in there real quick. You can almost see Paul right in this letter and he's thinking through all the implications, the unintended implications that we might gain if we don't listen closely, right? So he's saying here, guys, give yourselves to one another. This is very important. Do not live in a world where that stuff starts dying out in your marriage. And then he goes, by the way, just in case you're wondering whether I'm elevating marriage to some awesome place where it is the only way to display the oneness of God, I ain't. I'm not. 
As a matter of fact, if I had the choice for the better life for you, I'd tell you to live like me. Paul lived a single life. He was devoted to God. He could travel wherever he needed to go. He could risk his life a thousand times over because he didn't have eight kids at home who, if he risked his life, when he died, his wife would come get him and kill him again, right? So, um, <laughs> So you, you don't have some luxuries that Paul had. So he goes, if I could wish a life for you, I might wish my life for you. My life is an awesome display of the gospel, but my life is my life and my story and my gifting, and your life is your life and your story and your gifting. It's a good reminder to us, especially in our cultural Christian context, that marriage is not the be-all, end-all of all things. It is not what we ought to be striving for in order to finally be right uh, and be the right. I mean, think about it. When our children are born, you know, just I mean, tell me, you know, we we start praying immediately for their spouse. Maybe they're not supposed to have a spouse. Maybe they're supposed to be single, living out a dramatic and awesome story of God, uh, sharing the gospel. No, 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 no. Not my kids. We think that that's the end of everything. It's marriage. That's, marriage is beautiful, as is living single. Next week, we deal with singleness. Next week, we're here dealing with singleness in that context. And by the way, married people, you better be here. Because that's an important week for you as well because it's got to do with the gospel, not singleness or marriage. But the fact is, Paul's just saying, reminder, neither of these are what make you spiritual. The gospel is what rescued your soul. The gospel is what redeemed your future. And the gospel is what informs your purpose. And if you happen to be married, well, then let's do this. Let's, let's talk about marriage. And if you happen to be single, well, then let's do this and let's talk about single. And he's talking about marriage right now, but he's just reminding us, I'm not saying this is it because I'd actually ask you to be like me. If you could look, he even goes on to say it. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We take these verses and we make so much of them that aren't supposed to be made of them. It's a simple verse. He's just displaying freedom to us. Paul's just saying to us, here's the beauty of the gospel. If you find yourself single and, and you see a story of God unfolding, by all means, stay single and live that story. That is a good thing. He's kind of undoing the cultural uh, reality that says if you're single, uh, what happened? What happened? Did you miss your opportunities? Did you never find anyone else so sad for you? That's ridiculous. And he's saying that's ridiculous. Stop doing that. Stop feeling guilty because you're single. But on the other hand, if you're burning with passion everywhere, they don't want to go get married. But Paul's not saying, oh, if you're too weak to be single and you're burning with passion, well, I suppose you better go get married. Not saying that either. You see what Paul's doing? He's laying these two realities on the table back to back, back to back. This one's beautiful. This one's beautiful. This one's beautiful too. This one's beautiful too. Which one are you for? Oh, do you feel this way? Then, then do that. Do you feel this way? Well, then, then do that. But, but, but what if? It doesn't matter. What matters? That whichever one you choose, what informs you in that context is the great story of God, the gospel. And that's what this is about. Look, he's going to bring this home now because they'd obviously asked about divorce as well. And they'd obviously asked in this letter about divorce this way. Uh, well, when it, when it, you know, you find the one and it's so super sweet and you're like, oh my gosh, we're you know, soulmates for life. And then it kind of goes south. Uh, can we get out? Right? I mean, we, and can you tell us the rules? Like, what can I get out for and what can't I? Right? 
And then they'd also asked a very interesting question, apparently, because Paul's dealing with it. They had asked, uh, if I got married before I was a believer, and then you know, my, my spouse wasn't a believer, and then I came to know Jesus, now I'm in the church in Corinth, and oh, I want to be all spiritual, and I want to, you know, this was in the context of abstaining from all things physical, I want to do that, but my spouse, like, she's not a believer, or he's not a believer, can I bail? right? That's a legitimate question because there were probably a lot of couples in this church like that because they all came out of this crazy culture. And so there were probably a number of couples that had unbelievers and those people that didn't know Jesus as spouses. So Paul answers the question. Look at how beautifully he answers this. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, we write books about this stuff. Oh, Paul's setting all sorts of rules. Like, look, it's not complicated. Paul's not trying to be complicated. Do you know and love Jesus? Is that what your life is about? Is it about displaying the gospel? Well, then whatever your current circumstances are, lay your life down and display the gospel and live for this other person. It got a little hard. It got very hard. It's impossible. Well, listen, what does it look like to display the gospel? Now, now Paul's not ignoring the complications of all this, right? And I'm not saying we are. We're not insensitive to the massive layers that layer in these things, abusive relationships and, and, and all sorts of other things that go on. If you're in a hard place, you ought to go and find counsel from good, godly men and women, not friends that say they love Jesus that will say to you, you seem miserable, you should get out. That is not an answer. You should go find elder qualified kind of people, you know, deacon qualified, people that have been around the block, know the gospel, and can look at you with compassion and say, let's journey through this together. But at the end, what Paul's simply saying is this, this is not a covenant we jump and jump out. It's not a covenant we get into. This is about you laying yourself down for the sake of another, and you keep doing that when it gets hard. That's beautiful. And he says, I didn't actually say this, Jesus did. He says, not I, but the Lord. Where did Jesus say that? While he was on the planet in the Gospels, he actually said, uh, yeah, don't get divorced and, and do that. That's stay, stay in the marriage. Now, again, there's, there's complications. Don't get all feeling guilty now. What, what? We, we walk through things, but I'm just saying, this is, here's the Gospel standard. This is your invitation. This is your freedom. Look what he says next. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, he puts in, par- in, in parentheses. Now, can I just stop there for a second? This doesn't mean the first one's authoritative. Uh, you know, the Lord, not I, says this part. And now Paul's like, I say this, but not God. So this part isn't authoritative. No, that's what he's saying at all. He's just simply referring to the Gospels. Jesus actually spoke directly to marriage and divorce, but Jesus did not speak directly to the believer-unbeliever complication, okay? So all Paul's saying is this is just as authoritative. This is from the Spirit. But Jesus didn't actually say it while he was on the planet. So this is something I'm telling you led by the Spirit of God. Look what he says. Now, this is going to clue you into what this whole passage has been about. To the rest I say, not I, uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know your wife, a wife, whether your husband 
So whether you will save your husband, how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? Again, man, dissertations about this stuff, what it really means. Paul's just trying to lay freedom out for us. And here's the freedom he's laying out for us, not freedom to bail on hard things, the freedom to engage in hard things, but not to feel so guilty and bound that when they don't work out the way we wanted them to, that somehow it's our fault. Do you see what he just did? He went like this. If you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus and it's hard and they're willing to live with you, then live with them and continue to do exactly what I asked you to do, which is what? Lay your life down for the sake of your spouse. Give yourself to them holistically, right? Because what better way to engage in gospel display to a person who doesn't know Jesus than in your home loving them even when they're hard to love? What better way, right? There's no better way. So he goes, you make them holy. Just by being there, you are the light to them, the the, the salt to them in ways nobody else can be. So do that. What a privilege. It's hard, but what a privilege. And then he, he adds the kids, and I love it, because, you know, that's where we all fall back on, right? I've heard this many times. I got to get out of this marriage. Why? Well, because he or she is such a bad influence on the kids. He's going to destroy them. And then God goes, "Um, you think your kids are going to get all unclean because you're displaying the gospel? Your kids don't look unclean to me. In fact, the best display they can see of the gospel is someone who actually believes in Jesus living out the gospel in their home, even when they see the hardness that comes with the other spouse. I always tell them, be the gospel. That's how you keep your kids' eyes fixed. Your kids are never gonna be like, oh my gosh, that one looks so much more free than this one does. Unless you're bound by legalism, then they will. But you see, that's why Paul says, don't be legalistic about it. Don't be lawless about it. Be gospel about it. And then he says this, if it doesn't go well, If the spouse leaves, they want nothing to do with you. Don't go lay in a room somewhere feeling all guilty like you blew it. You're free. It's okay. Now, that doesn't mean you start praying, oh, God, I'll stick with them, but please make them leave as quickly as possible. Because then you're basically right back where you started, which is it's not a gospel issue, it's a self issue. Because that's what our entire culture is built on, isn't it? It's built on self. This is what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to say to us as a whole, Die to self, live for the gospel. And he's doing it specifically in the context of marriage right now. Here's our culture, right? Our culture in this particular area of sexual intimacy, our culture plays this way. Sexual intimacy is for you. It's something you ought to experience because it's really awesome. It's for you. And you should want it and wait for it and chase after it. Then we become Christians, so we, you know, from an early age, we start pursuing that. Every sitcom, every Disney Channel story, every stinking movie is about what? Dating relationships, right? Because that's, that's everything, isn't it? That intimacy, especially when the hand, oh, I touched their hand, it's so beautiful. Well, imagine if it went further than that. How cool would that be? And we live in that, right? And then here's what happens. We become Christians, and we find out you're not really supposed to engage in that kind of intimacy outside of marriage. And so what, is, what becomes our obsession next? So you mean I just have to get married so I can do that? Yep, sweet. And we chase after marriage. You know how many times I've sat with young men, no joke, across the table, and we, we're talking about something, and, and you know, Jesus returning and r- stealing us from this planet of death comes up. And they're like, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back as long as it's after the honeymoon. <laughs> no joke, comes up all the time. Bible college, that was standard operating procedure. Jesus return as soon as I'm done with my honeymoon. But not before that, because what if I don't get to experience, you know, that? And I'm like, hold, hold on, hold on. 
Jesus is going to take us from this body of death and this planet of death to an eternal home where we will be fully fulfilled, never experience sin and death, never experience pain, have nothing we'll ever need, know everything we need to know, and find ourselves in a perpetual state of total joy. And your conclusion is, can you wait on that until I have a honeymoon? Are you out of your mind? But you know what? Here's the deal. That's how we live, isn't it? And then we carry that into our marriages. Here's what we do. We do. Just, just be honest because it's what every comedian jokes about and what every book is written about, right? We come into our marriages and we think, this whole thing of sexual intimacy is about me. And my job is to do whatever I need to do to get from them whatever I need to get, right? Now, we would never say it that way, but then let's just be honest for a moment. When we say it that way, it kind of sounds real, doesn't it? Like, oh, shoot, I think I do think that way. And so what it becomes then is it becomes a game we play in our marriages, Right? So, you know, the husbands, we don't demand stuff from our wives, but we kind of do. We get super irritated. We walk around all huffy-puffy. We say things like, you know, I have needs. <laughs> you know, we don't, I'm not, not demanding anything, but I'm just saying. You know, we have these, and if it gets grumpy enough and crazy enough, then eventually the wife's like, all right. And we joke. Comedians joke about this stuff. Wives. Well, if the dishes weren't done and you didn't talk to me for three hours on the couch and meet my emotional needs and the kids weren't what they were today and I wasn't exhausted and that little child didn't hang on my stinking leg. I've been, been touched all day long. Don't touch me. Right? And we're like, yeah, no, that's all good. And it's like, just, yeah. And so we live. We live in this world. We're like, oh. But, but here's the reality. Here's the reality. All of those things ultimately direct back to what? Self. When I'm in a good place, when I'm ready, when I have, well, I have needs and I have this. And, and when, when we live there, we live there out of the cultural context in which we were raised, right? This sexual intimacy stuff, it's for you. It's to meet your needs and it's to make you happy. It's just now in a Christian context in a marriage. But actually the gospel would wholeheartedly disagree. It was never for you. Yes, it does create some wonderful things, but it was never for you. It was for the gospel. It was for the display of the unity of God. It was, to, it was to take two individual human beings and show the rest of the planet what it looks like when oneness occurs at the level that the triunity of God exists in. It doesn't mean you can't do that in singleness. It just means this was one of the beautiful ways to do it. And so giving ourselves to our spouse holistically, especially the most sacred part of ourselves, which is our body, it's the one thing that's tangible that we've got, right? That's why crimes against the body are such violations, because it's sacred and it's mine. And God's going, I know it's sacred and I know it's yours. Give it to them. Give it to them. Now, I'm not talking about to some abusive, addicted spouse that's misusing but then you need, again, then you need some counsel. But I am talking about the everyday stuff most of us live in. We hold back, we, we demand, we push, we, and this doesn't become beautiful. It becomes this constant thing. And, and what, what Paul's trying to tell us here is this. The enemy's always trying to undo the gospel in you. So before you're married, guess what he wants for you? He wants you to be obsessed with sexual intimacy to the point that you go find it. And then when you find it, he wants it to feel super good so you can keep finding it because that doesn't display the gospel and it doesn't guard the covenant of marriage. And then when you get married, what does he want then? He wants you to have it as little as possible. He wants it to be the most complicated, most burdensome, most horrific thing you've got to deal with. He wants it to be the thing that makes you most miserable in your life. The thing, and guess what? Divorce, what are the big ones, right? Money, sex. 
Those are the two big ones that kill marriages. Why? Because the enemy has spun this thing in our marriages to complicate it so much, and it's this simple. Stop being obsessed with yourself and start finding out what it looks like to have the privilege of giving yourself away for your spouse, for the sake of Christ, including in physical intimacy. What would that begin to look like? How freeing would that be? I don't have to do this, I get to do this for you. And why? Because it makes things easier for you. Did you notice how throughout this passage he kept saying, because there's sexual, uh, because sexual immorality is such a temptation? Did you notice how that was in the passage all over? It wasn't saying, you better do this because you know the temptation's super big and if you don't do this, then your spouse is gonna go do something else to someone else. You do that, there's no excuse. Well, you should have been doing that for me and then I wouldn't have done. No, 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 we're all responsible for that. But here's what he did say. If you already know that this is gonna make life easier for your spouse, don't you love your spouse? Don't you want to make life easier for them? Do you want to make life miserable for them? Some of you are like, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, we got bigger things to talk about then, right? But if we, if we really look at this from a gospel perspective, it's like, I want to make things easy for my spouse. I don't want them to have to deal with temptation. I know if they did, they would be strong and they would love Jesus, but I don't even want them to have to. So what a privilege it is that I get to step into their lives in this culture of insanity and say, you don't have to worry about that because I'm here. See, it's a privilege. It's a freedom. It's a joy. It's a wonder. And so it's worth beginning the journey of saying, Maybe we should talk about what this looks like. Maybe we should start talking about what, what, what would be great, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying this. Let's defy the enemy. Let's defy him. Let's defy the enemy. And here's how we defy him. If you're not married, defy the enemy and say, I get to not do that. Not I'm, I won't do it. I get to not, because that's not an idol. That's not an idol. It's just a way in which I could display the gospel if ever in a covenant of marriage. But I'm not an animal, I'm a human being. And I belong to Jesus and I get to live my life free of that stuff. And if you're married, here's how you defy the enemy. Ready? It's super fun. I get to. And I'm gonna do a lot. You go, what? Yep, welcome to church. That's how you defy the enemy because it matters to God, because he created it to be beautiful in this covenant, to display him and to guard your spouse's heart. So you get to do that, I get to do that, that's a big deal. Don't demand stuff, give stuff. Philippians chapter two, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who had every right to demand equality with God, but voluntarily laid aside his divine attributes to become a servant even a servant to death, even a servant to death on a cross, so that we might be safe. That we would get to do that in our marriages is an extraordinary privilege. Why would we not pursue that privilege and figure out how we can better give ourselves to our spouse? And if there's complications in what that looks like, then explain that to your spouse and say where I can and where I'm able and where we can, we'll figure other ways out. Because there's lots of complications, I get it. But at least lay the heart on the table. This is what I want for you. And where I can, I will. What would marriages look like if we were both doing that, hey? Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this extraordinary display of the heart of the gospel 
in our marital relationships, that spirituality is not abstaining from anything or engaging in anything. All things are lawful for us, but yet not all things helpful. All things lawful, but we will not be bound to anything. So allow us to walk into these things not as a rule or a guilty feeling or a, uh, an obligation, but as a freedom and invitation, a wonder that we get to explore to say, wow, what would it look like? if I were laying myself down for you in a new way that I have never done before? Would you weed out of us the self-preservation and the self-centeredness that often comes with sexual intimacy? And would you help us to journey together into freedom? If there are those here, God, that are in spousal relationships and it's complicated, there's baggage from the past, there's big things, there's seasons in life where bodies are changing and it's not as easy as it used to be. May we be gracious in those journeys, may there not be guilt in those journeys, may there be wonder in one spouse giving to another holistically, emotionally, mentally, with patience. May this never become a demand, but yet where we are able to give ourselves, especially in physical intimacy in this particular context, and where it is not complications that hold us back, but just simply self-centeredness or tiredness or weariness in ways that we can overcome, then may we find that to be an invitation into intimacy, not a burden to have to carry. And I pray, God, that those in this room that do I live a life right now that is single, that you would protect them from sexual immorality, protect their hearts and minds from feeling the weight of that temptation. And for those that are in this room that are married, God, I pray that the regularity of our physical intimacy would increase. Really, I do. I pray, God, that sexual intimacy would become something that would become a regular rhythm for all of us because we get to display the gospel that way. We get to lay ourselves down that way. We get to give ourselves that way. Help us to do that well. For the sake of our spouse, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.